finding of hypokalemia in a young person is a sine qua non of a covert eating disorder. And there is no other illness that causes it. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Alrighty, part two with Dr. Philip Mailer. So much fun and so packed again. Don't be afraid of irritable bowel syndrome as a medical provider. In the past, it was all a way to kind of dismiss it's in your head, but it is not, and we need to pay attention and help. And some things about bone, looking at the DEXA is one thing, but he talks about the trabecular bone score and looking at that with the DEXA to inform our treatment together. And you're hearing it again from Dr. Buell episode and from this episode about eating disorders being a metabopsychiatric illness and recategorizing. There is a link in the show notes to their article. And if you're in ER medicine, you're seeing a good number of folks with eating disorders. Also, this is coming out. He couldn't talk very much about it, but there's a paper under review that looks at patterns of microbiome that predict Weight gain, super interesting. And then olfactory training, why patients can't hear and feel like they're talking in a tunnel and what's going on with their taste senses. Finally, but not least, for sure, is atypical anorexia and the medical complications of normal weight or average weight eating disorders is bradycardia is very marked and refeeding hypophosphatemia is very real. And bone disease with rapid weight loss, even though the BMI is in the normal range. So listen in for the top three medical complications of atypical anorexia. Now, there's something brand new that uh, we just published a paper on about six months ago. It's called TBS. I don't think many people know about this yet. It stands for trabecular bone score. So if I asked you on a multiple choice question, who has worse bones with the same DEXA score. So if you have a 19-year-old with a bad DEXA score and an 80-year-old with a bad DEXA score, who has the weaker bones? The answer is clearly that it's the 80-year-old. But their DEXA scan, their T-scores are the same. Because remember, DEXA scans only measure bone mineral density, quantity of bone minerals. They don't, it doesn't measure the quality of the bone that you have. TBS is a new technology that measures the quality of the bone. And we finished a study recently and published it in International Journal of Eating Disorders. I think probably earlier this year it was. We published quite a bit from, from acute and, uh, and DRC. And what we showed was that when the TBS score is abnormal, every one of those DEXs are abnormal as well. But when the TBS is normal, the DEXA scan can still be abnormal. And the message is 
that in a 40-year-old, I don't care what the TBS shows. If the DEX is abnormal, I would treat. But in deference to my pediatric and adolescent medicine colleagues, if the DEX is abnormal, but the TBS is normal, then I wouldn't treat an adolescent. So the TBS adds information about the quality of bone. So if the scores are discrepant in a young person, I seed to the TBS score and I do not treat their osteoporosis. In older people, I don't care. I, tr I treat it based on the DEXA, but I think the adolescent medicines are correct and they say wait a little bit, but they agree that I wouldn't wait if both the TBS and the DEXA scores are abnormal. So I think it's nutrition. I think it's hypoglycemia. I think it's bones. I think it's looking at electrolytes. They're very important because certainly when your heart is sick and your potassium low, you're more at risk for an arrhythmia there. And then the last thing I would say is, is that in the past when I trained and when I was a resident or had outpatient clinics in internal medicine, the patient you did not want to see in your practice was the person with irritable bowel syndrome because it's all in your head. You're crazy. It's all in your head. There's nothing wrong with you. And but we now appreciate mind-gut interaction is really primary. We used to make fun of it, but it's clearly true. And there's good evidence in the eating disorder literature that our patients are enriched with GI complaints. And you have to understand that it's not all in your head as a way to dismiss it. It is in your head because the head is connected to the gut. And we have to work on both of them. So much of what we do in this field is we don't want to test every complaint because once you send these patients for test, it tends to reinforce that I'm sick and it, they'll never get better. So you have to be judicious about which tests you order. But when you order a test and it comes back normal, you don't say to the patient, you're nuts. You say to the patient that, thank God you don't have cancer. Thank God you don't have this or that. And your reason you're having this pain is because you have a heightened sensitivity to pain in your brain. And we need to help you with that. Love that. And so this, this sort of metabolic psychiatric disorder is a better way to look at it. And it's not all psychiatric. Certainly it is a psychiatric illness. But we have to appreciate this gut-mind interaction. And for you as dietitians on this podcast, in your lifetime, not in mine because I'm at the end of the train, I would tell you that this precision nutrition is what you're going to practice soon. You're going to be able to come up with nutrition plans for patients that are really tailored exactly to what they need. And that will be informed by microbiome data from their gut. It will be informed by genetic data. You know, the GWAS study that Dr. Bulick has really been heading up for years basically showed that there's eight active, important genetic loci that really determine a lot of things in anorexia. So it's no longer going to be 40% carbs, 40% fat, 20% protein for every Tom, Dick, and Harry that has an eating disorder. It's going to be precision. This nutrigenomics is a, a hot area. Absolutely. And in this paper that we just published, which if you want to write it down, it was published in the Trends in Endocrinology and Metabolism. Uh, in two, 2021. And uh, Dr. Bulick and I are the co-authors on this paper, and it was an honor to write with her. She's, uh, she's a hard worker. We've gotten amazing feedback about the paper that it really sums up where the field is. You know, when I ran Denver Health, if 
the people that had pneumonia, 20% of them got readmitted in 30 days. We got a penalty for Medicare. If our heart attack patients came back within 30 days, more than 20%, we got a penalty. But yet we accept a recidivism rate in eating disorders of 40%. And we don't get penalized for it. You know, why is that? Well, Tim Walsh, who's from Columbia, he's also a very iconic figure in this field. I've known him for years. He's also sort of semi-retired now. He just went back and looked at some data that he had put together 30 years ago, and he reanalyzed the data. And what his data showed was that the highest risk of relapse and eating disorders is somewhere between 60 and 90 days after the end of treatment. And so you all in the outpatient, when your patient's weight restored, you got to keep them on a leash still. You better stay in touch with them and call them back because their highest risk is probably about 60-ish plus days post-treatment. And the question is, why? Why is it that our recidivism rate is so high? And why is it that we're not doing better? There was a paper published in one of the journals in the last two months that said, we have a crisis in eating disorders. We still don't know why they're dying. We still have no cure for it. And we have a horrible recidivism rate. And, and resources are less and less available to people because of insurance and other issues. That confluence of things is bad. That doesn't portend good. And we have to change that. Tim Walsh's paper is very useful in that regard to say, you better watch your patients closely and better follow up with them. And, oh, your weight restored. I don't need to see you again. That's not true. So there's so many interesting dilemmas in this field right now and so many things that don't follow the rules that for young people looking for a career in medicine, psychiatry, psychology, dietitian, physical therapy, there are so many questions that haven't you know, been answered. All of our patients, vast majority have abdominal pain. In most of them, it's altered circuits between the mind and the gut. But there are some very clear things that cause pain. SMA syndrome, something that we really brought attention to many years ago is a big issue in these patients. It's, it's disappointing and fascinating to me on acute where people come in with BMIs of eight, nine, and 10. Why can't you eat? I have this horrible pain. Oh, it's all in your head. We do a CAT scan and have horrible SMA syndrome. And then worse, some of these people get in the hands of unscrupulous surgeons and they operate on their SMA when all they need is you all to yeah. refeed them and restore yeah. their weights. Yeah. So what's, your, what's your opinion on probiotics? Yeah, so I'm not a big vitamin guy because I'm an old man and uh, we didn't have vitamins when I was a kid. Uh, we, we drank cod liver oil is what they gave us, this horrible tasting stuff. And so I'm not a vitamin cottage. Uh, I don't go ahead there and buy big bags of vitamins. I know a lot of people do. And I actually think there's one vitamin that I believe in, believe it or not. It's biotin. I'm a big believer in biotin. And for anorectics, it's very important because they have these brittle nails. It actually improves your nail health. But probiotics are interesting. Yeah. For a while, we thought probiotics were important to prevent antibiotic-associated diarrhea and C. difficile infections. That's actually been shown not to be true. Right. It can so make whenever, it worse. Mm-hmm. Whenever we used to put people on antibiotics, we used to give them a probiotic in addition. We no longer do that. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we use a lot of azithromycin and acute to treat gastroparesis and to treat mm-hmm. slow gut transit. You remember as a kid, you took erythromycin and you got horrible cramps and diarrhea two days later. So we use that side effect of it to help gut motility. We used to put everybody on probiotics then, but we don't anymore. Yeah. So I think probiotics have a role. 
but the role has to be informed by precision microbiome data and, yeah, and genetic sure. data. But to give everybody a vitamin cottage probiotic doesn't make a lot of sense in right. my mind. Yeah. Um, so we just, we just finished a study uh, on acute, which uh, would be a crowning jewel to my career if it happens. But I've had a lot of papers published in my career. I've never had a paper published in Nature, which a lot of people think is the preeminent journal in the world. We have a paper under review right now. What we did is we took the microbiome, we took stool samples from the people on acute, and we analyzed it. And it's fascinating that there are patterns. I can't give you a lot of the details yet because it's not published, but there are patterns of microbiome that predict weight gain in our patients. So I think that the answer to your question, Dr. Voss, is that they do have a role, but the role is not willy-nilly. Everybody gets the same probiotic. It's got to really be more and more precision. And precision, nutrition, genomic nutrition, those are going to be terms you're all going to be dealing with because you're all young people, and you'll be dealing with that in your career. But I think the vitamins in that regard, which is a similar question, I think thiamine has a big role and we put everybody on thiamine for 10 days, hundred milligrams BID. And I think early on in refeeding, you should do that with all your patients. It's cheap, it's safe, it's water soluble. So you pee it out if you don't need it. There's nothing to worry about. A fascinating B12 levels, folate levels are all normal in anorexia. That's been studied over and over again. I'm also, uh, for the dietitians on the phone, I'm also a believer in zinc. I think that zinc helps dyskusia, and there's more and more interest that the taste centers and the smell centers in anorexia are off. So we weight restore someone, we say, see you later, go home. And then we wonder why four months later, they've dropped 50 pounds. Well, when you're on this 4,500 calorie diet, it tastes like cardboard. You have no incentive to eat, especially if you have underlying anorexia. Just for the record, for full disclosure, I had pretty bad COVID. Two months ago, I, I almost went to heaven. I got it from my uh, 38-year-old son who got it from his six-year-old son who got it from his teacher. And uh, my 38-year-old son, he had no symptoms, nothing. Didn't phase him. It knocked me on my butt pretty well. Mm. To this day, I still really don't smell anything. I'm now about <sighs> 10 weeks out. And it's frustrating as hell. I'm actually doing a olfactory training where I smell different oils. I think it's voodoo, but uh, (laughs) I'm continuing to do it because it's frustrating. And my taste is probably, you know, 50% or something. I like a lot of salt right now for some reason, but we don't pay enough attention to the taste and smell receptors. So although COVID popularized anosmia, I would tell you that I think our anorectic patients have it. Mm -hmm. We don't pay enough attention to it. I think zinc may have a role for these people and we often use it. We have a study ongoing at acute right now. We're looking at zinc levels and we hope to be able to publish off of that. Mm. I'll tell you that there are a lot of things in eating disorders that we're just not sensitive to. We just published a paper on something called patchless eustachian tube dysfunction. So normally your eustachian tubes are closed in your ears. And when you come down on an airplane and you feel like your head's about to pound off, and you push down and you blow out and you pop them open again. So for years, I've been fascinated by the fact that when I speak to my patients on acute, they don't hear me. They, I always have to speak louder. I tried to figure this out. So I involved 
some EMT colleagues. And it turns out that with weight loss, similar to SMA syndrome, anorectic patients don't close their eustachian tubes. They remain open. And we actually have video images of this and it's called patulous eustachian tube dysfunction. And within about 10 pounds of weight gain, it closes and they're fine. And we've gotten such compliments from our patients over the years. They said, for years, we've been telling our doctors that we can't hear. It sounds like we're talking in a tunnel and it's real. So simple things like the ability to hear, the ability to taste, the ability to smell, it's a tough illness. And then you got psychiatric issues and trauma issues that are driving your eating disorder. Yeah. It's not surprising that it doesn't get cured more, but um, there's hope. There's reason to be hope. There's a lot of work, good work being going on. They're young. They can get better. We got to give them this optimism and hope and, but we have to be sensitive to their ideas and be more thoughtful about what we say. And it's not all in your head. You're not crazy. No, these are Mm -hmm. real. We don't see anything, et cetera. Physically. Yeah. And I love that you're paying attention to, you know, the big systems, but also those little things that make such a huge difference in their quality of life. Yeah, exactly. Beth, did you have a question? I did because you were mentioning, you know, the, the, the ear and eustachian tubes and then SMA. Do you see any of this in atypical anorexia? So the average weight or above average? Yeah. It's a it's a interesting field, you know. Both uh, atypical anorexia and ARFID are understudied. We have a big study going on at Acute right now. It'll be the biggest study ever, looking at the medical complications of ARFID. It's interesting. We see a lot of ARFID patients on Acute who have very low BMIs, but we really don't know much about it. My own thinking for years has been that ARFID equals ANR medically, but I, I can't prove that to you. We will be able to prove it soon. But atypical anorexia, we even know less about it. So you had a BMI of 36. Somebody made fun of you, went on a crash diet. You have BMI of 24 now. Everybody applauds your efforts. Great job. You did it in three months. Wonderful. You're much be, you must be much healthier. And we've now learned that weight loss is good, but unfettered weight loss where you don't pay attention to anything and very aggressive is probably not good. We know that in atypical anorexia, even if your BMI is 23 right now, but the bradycardia that these patients get, the slow heart rate is very, very marked. The refeeding hypophosphatemia is very real in these patients. There's actually evidence that they get bone disease with that rapid weight loss, even though their BMIs are now still in the normal range. And so we're starting to look at that and the, and the field is starting to look at that. But we really don't know the answer to your question about atypical anorexia yet. Yeah. It, it just is not clear yet how many medical complications they get. Many of them get amenorrhea, even though their BMIs are still normal. Mm-hmm. We know the bradycardia. We know the bones. We know the refeeding hypophosphatemia. And we can no longer applaud any form and rapidity of weight loss. We need to put guardrails around that and say, yes, we want you to lose weight. The other issue is, is how do you refeed someone with atypical anorexia? Do you get them back to a BMI of 33? I think nobody would say That's that. Great question. And what is that new sort of area that you should be at? And it's not clear in the literature. My own approach is that we tell people that probably makes sense to get to a BMI of 26 or 27 mm-hmm. uh, slowly, but nobody really knows that answer. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, uh, it's we're seeing more and more of this in that field. What do you think about the fasting diet fad that's going on right now? 
Yeah, the ketogenic diets and all those things. You and, know, the, I, and the intermittent fasting. Yeah, I think it's all unproven. I think we know that there was a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine maybe 10 years ago. They looked at every diet on earth, you know, the Brighton diet and this diet and the beach diet and this diet. And what they showed, they even looked at Weight Watchers. And what they showed at the end of the year, the average loss of weight was about two kilos. That's it. Yeah. If you don't work on other parts of it, you just lose weight. You're not going to get there. Yeah. And, uh, that's why this rapid, uncontrolled weight loss is is not a good idea in these people. So yeah. I think these are all unproven, and I'm a big believer in that. You got to approach things in a restrained and measured way, and they got to make sense, and there's got to be science behind it. And, mm-hmm. I uh, love that paleo, paleo diets and all this and that. There's no great evidence behind them, and uh, it's common sense. It, you know, it's not eating too much fat, not eating too much cholesterol, eating a reasonable amount of protein, being thoughtful with your grains and your vegetables and fruits and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. A modicum of, you know, 150 minutes a week of aerobic exercise. It's this sort of multidisciplinary, again, multidisciplinary approach kind of a diet. And these one-offs, I think, are dangerous and tough to sustain Remember, if you lose 5%, if you're obese and you're unhealthy and you lose 5% of your body weight, you've done your body a huge favor by doing that. But when they walk into doctors and say, we're going to get you to lose 84 pounds in the next four months, it's not sustainable. And that's why there's no success in this field. Yeah. And acute has kind of shifted to uh, eating disorders, but also malnutrition from other sources. And so so you're seeing that in lots of different diagnoses. We do a little bit of inflammatory bowel disease where they want to get re-nourished to a weight where they can undergo new treatments for their Crohn's and their ulcerative colitis. That's one group. The second one is cancer cachexia for people that need to undergo RT or chemo and they're too ill to do it. We're seeing those people that are being sent to us from cancer centers that don't have eating disorders because of our expertise in weight restoration and nutrition. Chronic infections is another fascinating thing. There's a whole group of cousins to tuberculosis that are called NTM, non-tuberculous mycobacteria. The other name for it is MAI. I have a relationship with the NIH. We're looking at a certain pulmonary infection called MAI, which is a bad infection in the lung. It eats the lung up quickly. And it turns out that we found more and more of these patients that have MAI that have covert bulimia. And the theory is that when you purge all the time through self-induced vomiting, you aspirate some of the vomitus into the lungs and you set up fertile grounds for this MAI. And it's a fascinating new area that we're looking at. Uh, And we treat these people. They are highly catabolic. They generally need six to 7,000 calories a day to gain weight. The reason they have to gain weight is the definitive treatment for MAI is to do lung surgery and cut out the infected lung, but they die if they don't have a BMI above about mm. 17. Mm. So they come to us to refeed and we treat them with a combination of oral, parenteral and enteral to give them the six or 7,000 calories. If you look at the first description of MAI, the description is in the paper called the Lady Windemore syndrome. And they describe tall, asthenic middle-aged females getting MAI. They had no clue about eating disorders, Mm. but the phenotypic characteristics of these MAI patients, they look like eating disorder patients. And we actually think it's not just that they look like them, but they've had covert bulimia for years. 
We just had a scientist from one of the big tech companies on the West Coast that was mandated into treatment for his covert eating disorder. Brilliant fellow, Rhodes Scholar, brilliant guy, and a PhD from Stanford that had an MAI infection has had covert bulimia for years. Oh my and his gosh. workplace colleagues have always wondered why he's so thin and why he's always leaving meetings and those kind of things. And he had bad bulimia. He did well on acute and he's getting surgery uh, soon to take out that piece of lung. So mm-hmm. acute really changed. We actually changed our name. It's not only acute, but it's also for severe malnutrition. And so we do cancer cachexia, HIV cachexia, chronic infections, like I just mentioned, and then big time catabolic weight loss diseases, such as uh, Crohn's and things like that. But 90% of our, our book of business is still a severe eating disorder. Eating disorders. And, you know, I know we're going to have to have you back at some point. And when your book is released, I want everyone to get it because all of these things that he's saying, <laughs> that Dr. Mailer is saying is, you know, it, you can see it's a work in progress and it's an evolution. And so there could be a edition five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, well beyond, like he said, past retirement. So Dr. Mailer, there was one thing I wanted to ask you. You're such a teacher and you will say, you said in here, you know, if I asked you this question on a test, you do some trainings for emergency room or emergency doctors. Do you still do that? Yeah, there's a a good paper published from uh, Susan Dooley Finch, who you may know, who's at the University of Michigan, and she's an adolescent medicine ER doctor. And she did a project in the University of Michigan ER, which is a huge ER. They see 200,000 patients a year in their ER, and they have an adolescent and peds part of the ER. One out of six patients in their ER, this is staggering, one out of six patients in their adolescent ER were there with a medical issue related to a covert eating disorder. So our patients don't want to go to primary care because mm-hmm. they, they don't want to be figured out. So they mm-hmm. use their ER as their primary care site de facto. Mm-hmm. And we have to teach our ER docs uh, to recognize these. This is the mistake that's made. Patient comes in, they fainted at school, they had a seizure at school, they had palpitations. ERs are teeming with patients. Jayco's on our neck about getting people through quickly. So the doctor walks in the room, what's wrong? I have palpitations. Okay, draw some blood. They draw some blood. Potassium comes back at 2.8. He walks in. I know why you're sick. Your potassium's low. Here's potassium. See you later. Question is, why is your potassium low? Nobody asked that. Mm-hmm. Finding of hypokalemia in a young person is a sine qua non of a covert eating disorder. There's no other, there is no other illness that causes it. The body does an amazing job of maintaining our potassium in a normal level. Why does this 18-year-old have a potassium same thing. Every Saturday morning, a young person comes in with a nosebleed. They cauterize them and send them out. But you've been here the last nine weeks. What's going on on Friday night? Well, when you purge your guts out, you get a nosebleed. Mm-hmm. So the answer to your question is, Beth, yeah, I mean, the ER docs are at the forefront of first line of defense for a lot of these patients. They got to be more inquisitive and not just boot these people out and treat them like with a bandage. And they got to be asking, we got to identify these people because, again, it's curable makes a big difference when you intervene and it's highly lethal. So uh, yeah, yeah. I heard that there was a 21-year-old who died in Texas with an eating disorder of an acute gastric rupture. She just ruptured her stomach and mm. uh, that shouldn't be happening. Uh, we yeah. had another lady that was going to come to acute on a Friday morning. She was in a very reputable hospital on the East Coast. 
very weak and she got out of bed, fell, hit her head, unconscious, cat stand, big bleed, and her husband put her on comfort care and she died the next morning. People don't realize how weak these people are. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are dying from hypoglycemia that we're not recognizing. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that out there and we need more and more education. Yeah. I remember one of your soapboxes too was the pacemakers being put in. (laughs) We take them out at acute. We end up taking out pacemakers. These people do not need pacemakers. They need to to be on monitors, but if you refeed them and rewarm them, their heart rate's going to come up. They don't need Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Wow. So anything else you want us to know about acute or anything that we missed today? No, that's kind of you. I mean, the the thing that the, the world needs to understand is that we're not competition for the residential treatment centers. We're a resource for them. We take care of a, we discharge people at a BMI of 14 at 70% of IBW, and then they go to residential. So we're not in there to compete with them. We're a resource for you to get people better. You know, if you have someone who's got a BMI of 11 at a residential treatment center and every other day you're sending them out to the ER, what kind of treatment is that for that person? So that's one thing. The second thing is we bill on the medical side, not on the psych side. So we don't use up their psych benefits. So then when they go to a psych facility or an eating disorder program, they have their full benefits to be able to use. Number three, we're very much in touch with whoever sends them to us. So if Abby sends us a patient, we're going to make sure to try to get that patient back to Abby and to communicate with her while the patient is on acute Number four, as long as I'm around and a patient came to us, I'm then a resource after they leave us. So if a question comes up, I'm glad to answer that to patients. Wow. Our yeah. average length of stay is about 22 days. We are able to get them to a BMI of 14. The bulk of our patients are ANR and ANBP. We do a little bit of BN, straight BN, where they come in and they just can't stop purging because of the pseudobarters of edema phenomenon. And we have a complex mechanism using three different diuretics to detox them from their mode of purging. So we can do anything. There's nothing we can't do. We have the expertise on the unit, but then we have Denver Health there. So if we need to have a cardiologist to come over, there's no charge for the patient. But you know, well, when you send your patients to a GI doctor in town and then an endocrine doctor, then a cardiologist, and they all give them different ideas. They've never seen this. They do more testing. You get efficient care at acute. Uh, We know what to do. We stay in touch. We respect the referral sources. We get them back to them. And then we're a resource going further. And that's all we do on acute. We don't do pneumonia in one corner and this in one corner. We also, I have boards in addiction medicine. And so we can, you don't have to have that dilemma. Do I treat their substance abuse first and then their eating disorder or vice versa? We can detox anybody from any form of substance abuse while they're with us. It's an amazing resource. It's something that I have three children. This is sort of like my fourth child. And it's something we're very proud of. (laughs) Yes. It's It's an amazing resource. And You'll be surprised, Uh, you probably know this uh, from being in the field a while, but it's amazing how people live under the radar with BMIs of 10, and they just don't go for for treatment, and Mm -hmm. then they present to your office, and the message really to your colleagues would be is, A, it's not safe for you to take care of those people as outpatients. It Mm -hmm. puts your license on the line for medical legal issues, and there's a place in America that, you know, we actually have this professional relationship, not a business relationship at all with Angel MedFlight where they'll, a patient that's coming to acute, they'll actually pick them up from home with the, with the ground ambulance, take them to an airport to their plane and then bring them to acute. And they don't charge the patient a nickel. If they don't collect from insurance, 
There's no charge. Wow. So, that is so good to know. You know. For patients that are very, very ill that can't fly commercially and don't want to stand in TSA's lines for nine hours, you know, they do it very quickly and get mm. them there. We don't do it for anybody that really is BMI above 11 or so, but for those below it, you can't expect them to go through a big airport. And so it's a nice service that we have that, mm. and they agreed to use all the protocols that I wrote. So they check their sugars in flight, they have fluids, they have meds, they're in contact with us and it's a, a safe transport. So and I will vouch that you guys are a great resource because our inpatient unit has definitely called you guys multiple times when we have some really difficult cases. So where are you? We are in Kansas City, Missouri at Children's oh, yeah. Mercy Hospital. Yeah, we've had a few referrals. Yeah, thank mm-hmm. you. Oh, good buddy of mine, Michael Spalding Barkley, was at yep. that hospital, I think, about 10, 15 years ago. Yes, yep. Dr. Voss is now. I'm the in- new Michael. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was there, too, when Michael was there. So Dr. Oh, Spalding great. Barclay. Yeah, we yeah. work with him a lot at ERC as well. Hi, Dr. Spalding Barclay. Nice to meet you. Yeah, so, so great. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Mailer. And all of these, uh, the information and some of the articles that Dr. Mailer talked about today, including how to get in touch with Acute, will be in the show notes. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethherald.com slash professionals.